It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello. What difference could half a degree make? In its new report, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, tells the world to aim for 1.5. Two degrees of global warming is too hot. This would mean up to 10 million fewer people exposed to the risk of rising seas. Will this report put a fire under governments to take action? I think people can be both alarmed and apathetic. They can, you know, you can be deeply anxious about this and still not know what you can do. Can governments all be like Costa Rica? Costa Rica already has decarbonized the power sector. So we have done at least half of the task. And what will all this cost? It comes into hundreds of billions of euros for the energy intensive industries in Europe. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. It's finally landed. After three years of work, collating 6,000 academic papers and coming in at over 700 pages, the IPCC has issued its latest report on the impact of global warming. It says, controversially, that the critical limit of warming is 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial temperatures, not the 2 degrees, as long believed. Valérie Masson-Delmont is the director of research at the French Alternative and Atomic Energies Commission and one of the lead authors on the report. She told me what's in it. There are four key messages. The first one is that climate change is already affecting people, ecosystems and livelihoods all around the world. The second one is that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is not impossible, but would require unprecedented transitions in all aspects of society. There are clear benefits to keeping warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to 2 degrees Celsius or higher. Every half degree matters. And finally, limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius can go hand in hand with achieving other world goals, such as sustainable development and well-being for all. Okay, so now at the Paris Agreement in 2015, the key phrase was a commitment to keep temperature increases to, quote-unquote, well below 2 degrees. Yet this new report emphasizes 1.5 degrees. How much difference does half a degree make? Actually, that is a surprise even for scientists. For instance, for the rate of sea level rise, it would be 10 centimeters lower at 1.5 degree compared to 2 degree warming. And this would mean up to 10 million fewer people exposed to the risk of rising seas. It makes also a whole difference in terms of biodiversity. And in numbers, for instance, the number of the proportion of the world population exposed to water scarcity would be twice smaller at 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to 2 degrees Celsius. I have to ask, considering that we're on course for a 3 degree or more warming of the atmosphere, how is the target going to be reached? What's important is that past emissions of greenhouse gases do not commit to warming reaching 1.5 degree or surpassing it. It all depends on what is going to happen now. And so the report has also assessed what would be uh, consistent with 
limiting global warming to 1.5, and it implies very sharp reductions in carbon dioxide emissions, typically by about 45% by 2030, compared to the levels in 2010. And for comparison, limiting global warming to below 2 degrees implies the same reductions, but only by 20% by 2030. In both cases, if you want to limit global warming, you need to have um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions to reach net zero. And for carbon dioxide, you would need to reach net zero by 2050 to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Hearing about what it would take, it sounds to me those are huge numbers. So should we be optimistic or not about meeting these targets? I think we need to be brave. And what's clear is that pledges that governments made over the last three years are not enough to keep warming below 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees, even with ambitious and challenging efforts after 2030. So the key thing is, if you want to leave the option of stabilizing global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius in the middle of the 21st century, uh, carbon dioxide emissions would need to decline before 2030. And that's a very important message. It's not about being optimistic or pessimistic. I think it's, it's about being lucid, responsible, and brave so that we can act, each of us at each level, now. Valérie Masson-Delmont, thank you very much for joining us on the show. You're welcome. Now I'm here in the studio with Jan Petrowski, our environment correspondent, and Oliver Morden, the Essays and Briefings editor. Oliver also worked as an expert reviewer on the IPCC report. They spent the last two days preparing articles in this week's issue that considers the implications for policymakers, businesses, and what happens next. So, Oliver, how significant is this report? Not terribly. Why not? Because it tells the world things that the world already should have known if it was paying attention. Uh, to put it in context, the uh, UNFCCC, the UN body that does climate change at the Paris um, conference in 2015, agreed that the world should try and reduce um, emissions to the extent of limiting climate change to two degrees centigrade at the very worst and ideally a lot less, maybe as little as 1.5 degrees. This says, which was kind of baked into that idea, that 1.5 degrees would be considerably better than two degrees. It says so in far more detail than it's been said before. But given that the current policies of all the major countries in the world do not provide for a pathway that gets close to two degrees, knowing now that the 1.5 degrees that it's not going to get to are considerably better than the two degrees it's not going to get to doesn't seem to me to make a great deal of difference. Jan? I'm partially inclined to, to agree with, with Oliver, but I'm probably a little bit less cynical um, in that the, what the report does, is, as, as Oliver says, it, it presents no new science of its own. It is a comprehensive survey of the science of what is known about a 1.5 degree world and a, and a two degree world. And obviously that's hedged by very wide error bands and, and a great deal of uncertainty, which is inherent in, in this particular part of, of the scientific endeavor, which, which tackles the climate. But I think what it does usefully do is it does really pull together things which have been around. Um, a lot of them, actually, a lot of the research has itself been spurred by the, the compilation of this report. And the fact that they have now been sort of laid out in a, in a relatively perspicuous form with all the caveats 
seems to me to to be a useful curating exercise. It is an open question whether this will actually lead to a change in, in policymakers' behaviour. Exactly. Useful, I, I'm not clear when you say useful. Useful to whom and for what? Well, certainly useful to the people within certain organisations and and uh, and governments who do care about this. And, and it, I think it would be wrong to say that nobody does. There are people who are concerned. There are governments, which some of which are, are more concerned than others. And this gives them a certain degree of ammunition. What do you think, Ali? The IPCC has been providing more ammunition since the third assessment report and the fourth assessment report and the fifth assessment report. This ammunition does not seem to have actually achieved a great deal in terms of actual reductions. The degree to to which climate policy is effective is is notoriously difficult to gauge. You know, you sort of have to almost retroactively rethink the, what would have been the business as usual scenarios. It, it could be that governments and policymakers are making some sort of a dent in what would otherwise have been a, you know, a steeper rise in emissions. It, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. So what can governments do now? Jan? The obvious thing that they, they can do, which they probably won't do, is, is become much more ambitious uh, with uh, with their with their climate policies. Yes, there are things that governments could do, but as Jan says, the evidence that they wish to do so is not particularly strong. However, to try and reach a, one of the 1.5 degree scenarios outlined in the IPCC report through carbon emissions reduction would require them plunging the world into recession. I do not in any way ascribe to the belief that in general good climate policy is antagonistic towards economic growth, though I know there are arguments on both sides. But the sort of climate policy that would try to decarbonize the economy by 58% over the next 12 years would be, you know, kind of cataclysmic. And so it's not going to happen. Jan? So one useful service that the IPCC does do um, is, is it does point towards the necessity of of trying to get carbon out of the atmosphere, which is something that really hadn't been discussed at all in policymaking circles. It is at least now being presented as an option to um, to examine. That actually moves into an area where I think the policy debate has been particularly poor. The idea of taking out, what is it, uh, 100 gigatons of carbon dioxide, that's really quite remarkably unlikely. And yet we are allowed by the IPCC saying these things to say, oh, well, it's possible the uh, world will still hit two degrees. It would be great if it only hit 1.5 degrees. And without anyone actually working on either carbon geoengineering that takes carbon out of the atmosphere or solar geoengineering that stops sunlight coming into the atmosphere, I think we're very unlikely to see any progress. So more than just symbolism, isn't one of the purposes of the report to shock the world into at least doing something rather than nothing? That's probably part of its underlying goal. It certainly spurred discussion. The problem is that these reports, they have a relatively short lifespan in when it comes to policymakers' attention. The point is, yeah. this is another in a long string of such reports. They are always taken on board. They are used by people who lobby and entirely for the right reasons for climate action to try and shock the world. That's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about this is what can you do to reduce carbon emissions to net zero as quickly and feasibly as possible? And what can you do to adapt 
um, people's lives, especially the lives of the most vulnerable people, so that the risks that they face in that process are not too terrible. So what are those answers? Do we have them? It does mean that you need considerably greater control over the allocation of resources in the energy industry. You need large-scale refit programs in temperate latitudes to make houses more efficient. You need a vastly larger, vastly cleaner electricity supply system, which would involve renewables and quite possibly, and certainly nuclear, actually, if you're going to get the job done, and quite possibly carbon capture and storage. Those are just the beginnings. You need an entirely emissions-free transportation fleet on the ground. You need to be almost entirely emissions-free um, on the oceans. You probably can't be emissions-free in the air. Uh, you're going to have to do something profound about agriculture. If it's doable with people continuing on contemporary diets, um, it will be very hard to do. Or again, um, needs offsetting. Or again, will need offsetting. But, you know, not with the fact that we're also saying we're going to need some carbon dioxide reduction for non-offsetting. You know, that offsetting basket is not going to be very, very big. So those are the sorts of things that happen. But they're also the sort of things that people have been saying should happen for quite a long time. What is one to do in such a world? Well, I mean, the scenarios that, that Oli depicted are precisely the scenarios that are actually outlined in some detail in, in the IPCC report. I mean, the, the, there is not even a tacit, a very open acknowledgement that the transformation required in order to, let's even not talk about the target, to avert catastrophic climate change would, would require a, you know, a transformation of the economy on a scale that is, that is unprecedented. And I think it probably bears repeating. Isn't the risk that the challenges presented are so monumental that it leads to passivity, inertia? The revealed preference of most people does seem to be towards apathy rather than alarm when you look at you know, how consumers behave. I mean, people have no intention of stopping. I think we shouldn't discount the possibility that's a false dichotomy. I think people can be both alarmed and apathetic. They can, you know, you can be deeply anxious about this and still not know what you can do. And the other thing is that although many environmental issues are actually subject to change and improvement simply through individual action, climate change really isn't one of them. I mean, you can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that you emit, and the obvious ways to do this are to cut red meat out of your diet and to take no aeroplanes. Um, going on from that, you could go on to not owning a car or owning an electric car. But, you know, those are things that you can do for yourself, but you're not going to be able to do them for anyone else. If you want to stop car emissions, you actually have to have a, have a government that's willing to say cars have to stop emitting uh, carbon dioxide. You just can't do it all through voluntary action. Absolutely. Jan and Ali, thank you very much for being a part of the show. Thanks. You're very Ali. welcome. Now, one country that is already on course to reach net zero is Costa Rica. In May, the president, Carlos Alvarado Caseda, announced that his country would be the first to go completely fossil fuel free. Monica Araya is one of the key advisors working on the national decarbonization plan, and she joins me on the line now. Hello, Monica. Hello. So, Monica, how is Costa Rica going to reach net zero? The president is young and he has no time to waste. Costa Rica already has decarbonized the power sector and the country has also stopped deforestation, which is not the case for the rest of the world. So we have done at least half of the, the task. So what we need to do now is to decarbonize the transportation sector, which is, a, is part of a bigger puzzle out there because we need to stop using so much gasoline and diesel for our cars and buses and, and taxis and you name it. So basically what we have in front of us is the opportunity to electrify 
the collective means of transportation because it's something people use every day. Does the IPCC report change things for you? Of course. First of all, Costa Rica has been part of the Climate Vulnerability Forum since its inception. So I can assure you that for Costa Rica, the approval of the 1.5 degrees special report in the context of Paris was a very happy moment because many countries were skeptical. So Costa Rica sees this report as a very clear signal that we have to mobilize ourselves instead of being paralyzed by the science. Won't the limits on carbon emissions hurt emerging economies? How do you go greener but also protect growth? Well, that is a very important myth that that we see it as a myth uh, because we have shown in Costa Rica that we were able to invest in natural capital. We were able to stop deforestation. We were able to do a lot of good things when it comes to the environment while growing the economy and growing the population. So we are very unapologetic about making sure that the environment is part of our politics and narrative. You wouldn't have a president um, saying that he wants a decarbonization plan in the first month um, if we hadn't worked that out in the past decade. So I, I would really turn it around and say, if you don't protect the environment, you are going to be in trouble. So, Monica, let me turn it around once again and ask, maybe Costa Rica is the exception that proves the rule, that in fact... What you've done, particularly with your natural capital, your natural resources, is unique or fairly unique to Costa Rica. But for other countries, maybe India or Sierra Leone or Zimbabwe, they don't have the same resources, so they can't do the same thing. It's never a good time to invest in, in the environment. It's always The argument is always, look, this is expensive and it's not the right time. And that has always been the case. Something that is really tough and is the tension that you find when you are moving to a decarbonized economy and you propose all this electric mobility and all these cool things. And then somebody says, okay, what are we going to do with the refinery workers? So one of the things that I have learned and it's something I need to do much, much better is that we have to give good answers to the tensions that decarbonization and a lot of these clean technologies and new technologies in general Uh, create for labor markets. Because if we don't solve that, if we don't find more just transitions, um, it's going to be very tough to to get these labor movements to agree. Monica, thank you very much. You're very welcome. So how are energy-intensive industries responding? John Cooper is the Director General of Fuels Europe, which represents the interests of the European oil refineries industry. Its members include BP, ExxonMobil, Shell, and others. He told me how they've already started working towards reducing their emissions. In Europe here, we work closely with the political institutions. They already have very strong commitment to climate policy. And in fact, we started working along with other energy-intensive industries back in February we were asked by the Commission to start working up plans to describe how we would go to a net zero economy world by 2050. So we're already on the case. You've been asked by the Commission to come to a net zero carbon world by 2050. Is that at all feasible? The technologies actually do exist. However, they would require enormous scale up substantial development to bring down costs. 
but also critically are dependent on a number of other developments that are beyond our direct control, such as much more renewable electricity, a very substantial increase in the amount of renewable electricity overall, and also the development of some policy framework that enables you to sell into markets that recognize the higher value, if you like, of low-carbon products. It's very similar whether you're talking about cement or steel or plastics or jet fuel. You're talking about making products in a different way, products that do the same thing, but they'll require more capex and more operational costs as well. And, of course, that'll have to somehow be picked up by the markets. The other issue is that uh, there's a real problem if different countries and regions of the world go at different speeds. And that's the challenge in particular we're facing in Europe because Europe aspires um, in an admirable way to climate leadership. But if that means that industry is asked to go much faster with these investments and this transition compared with products that can be imported from other regions of the world, it gives a competitive disadvantage. So there's multiple challenges that we've got to manage to make that transition practical. Okay, so I think a lot of listeners would be really interested to know that you say the technology does exist to meet that pathway by 2050, but there's a lot of obstacles to get there. It seems to me that behind what you say, one of the biggest obstacles is cost. How much would it cost? Well, there are some very high-level estimates in the study that we've done together. It comes into hundreds of billions of euros, hundreds of billions for the energy-intensive industries in Europe. And that would be the costs for the industries alone. There would likely be some other costs for development of infrastructure, possibly at public level, for things like piped CO2, captured CO2, for reuse, hydrogen, etc., and certainly for further supply of renewable power. So there are substantial costs, and there's not enough public money to cover those costs by a large margin. And so it's also about creating a, an attractive case for investors, frankly, global investors, to make this work as well. But in a global economy that measures its GDP in the tens of trillions, hundreds of billions sounds like it's actually doable over time. How would you motivate both government and business to make the case for this investment? We think it's got to work for the investor and it's also got to work for the customer. At the moment, we don't recognize what you might call the historical carbon or the embedded carbon in most products. Whatever commodity you're talking about, uh, the commodity is valued in terms of what it does for the customer. If we're moving to a system where at the same time there are products on the market that are made in a low carbon way or in a high carbon way, there's got to be some method of recognizing that difference in value in a way that is enduring, reliable for investors. The types of investments we're talking about would still quite possibly be several billions for each project. Investors would want to see you know, a 20-year stability in the demand for the products that result from that in order to write the investment case and make it work. John, thank you very much for being on the show. Pleasure. Thank you. So what do you think? Is net zero feasible without doing too much damage to the global growth that developing countries in particular rely on to lift themselves out of poverty? What can countries and businesses do that is effective and realistic? 
We'd like to hear your thoughts on the IPCC report. Please email them to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And you may even hear your words on our next show as we read out some of the replies. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. If you like our journalism, subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. For 12 issues, for $12 or £12, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.